Hi, I'm Sian Xiao, a healthcare researcher. And I'm Sammy Winemaker, a palliative care doctor. If you or someone you know is facing a serious illness, you've probably spent many hours in waiting rooms, scared and not sure what to expect. We can help. Together, we've heard from thousands of patients and families dealing with serious illness. Our goal is to share what we've learned so you can be more prepared and in control. This is the Waiting Room Revolution, and it starts right now. Hi, I'm Dr. Sien Xiao. And I'm Dr. Samantha Winemaker. Most people call me Sammy. We are so excited to bring you this podcast, The Waiting Room Revolution, because we have uncovered the keys that can help every single person facing a serious illness and their families. People like you who are listening right now. We are experts in serious illness. I'm a palliative care doctor, and for the past 15 years, I've cared for very sick people and their families in their homes at the end of life. And I'm a healthcare researcher. Through interviews, patients and families share with me the most intimate details and frustrations of dealing with all kinds of serious illnesses. We started this revolution because we saw how bad things can get when people are facing serious illness. In this podcast series, a serious illness is any condition that's not curable, that will get worse over time, and will shorten one's life. So what's a serious illness? Things like chronic heart disease, ALS, kidney failure, frailty, dementia, and some types of cancer. And the list goes on. Actually, it turns out that these keys will help patients and families with any kind of condition. And even if you haven't spent much time in a waiting room and dealing with the health system yet, chances are you or someone you love will eventually face a serious illness in your lifetime. So you can still benefit from learning about these keys now. So Sammy, what is the problem that we are focused on in this podcast? What I have learned from thousands of deaths is alarming. I get so frustrated because I see most of my patients at the 11th hour, and by then, it's too late. They're missing all this key information that no one has told them yet, that the healthcare system has avoided because they didn't want them to give up hope. But what I hear on a daily basis from patients and families is, why didn't anyone tell me that sooner? Most patients and families feel overwhelmed and unprepared for what to expect next. I call this experience an in-the-dark illness journey. It's like going to a new destination without a map. Yet, there is hope. I noticed that some patients and families felt more in control, confident, and prepared throughout their illness journey. They were able to plan ahead, have more choices, and customize their care plan to their wishes and preferences. This is an in-the-know illness journey. And so what we wanted to do was understand the difference between an in-the-dark versus an in-the-know illness journey. I reflected on all the times when people said to me, I wish someone had told me that sooner, to try to find a solution that would help those patients and families that I would never meet, just like you in the waiting room right now. From my experience, because of a very complex health system and systemic problems with healthcare in general, many of you are destined to end up on the in-the-dark journey. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
So I'm so excited to share the solution that we've uncovered through our work that will help you. When I hear you talk about your patients saying, I wish I had known that earlier, that really resonates with me, Sammy. You know, when I lost my mother to breast cancer, the doctors who treated her for four years never once really prepared her or me and my family about what was coming next. They always focused on treatments, but not on what mattered to her. And when she died, we were totally unprepared. I wish someone had told us sooner about what to expect throughout her entire cancer journey. When she passed away, we really didn't get a chance to have closure and say goodbye because we really didn't know what was happening, even though looking back, it was all very predictable, even months before her death, because at some point her doctors knew her cancer was not curable, but they avoided telling us this. And dying is not a point in time, it's a journey. And I have no doubt that she got great medical care, but it focused on the day-to-day issues related to her cancer and not on her needs as a person or my family's needs. We were in the dark and her death seemed sudden. Maybe if we had been more prepared, she could have died at home with her family like she wanted, but instead she died in a hospital bed where she was for several weeks. It's true that most deaths feel sudden and out of left field if you don't have information about the big picture of the illness right from the time of diagnosis. It feels sudden, like a car accident. You're right. And the thing is, Sammy, that experience I just described about losing my mom, that was 30 years ago. I often hear in my research interviews with patients and families now the same story, where they end up saying, I wish someone had told us that sooner. So while there have been amazing healthcare advancements in treatments and technologies, the truth is the patient and family experience really hasn't changed that much. And so I have spent my career trying to change the way patients and families experience serious illness. Really, we both have been doing that. One of the things that I've been very dedicated to is education. I've taught many hundreds of healthcare providers about the intricacies of providing palliative care over the years. I've tried to increase their knowledge about managing complex symptoms and the idea of helping people navigate the journey of serious illness. I've taught half days and full days and weekend courses all over the place for many, many years. While I do find that work very rewarding, I also realize that it isn't moving the needle much. Unfortunately, just like your interview, CN, the system hasn't changed as much as it needs to. Changing a whole healthcare system and changing doctor and nurse's behavior takes a long time. And education is important, but it's not moving fast enough. So it's deeply frustrating. I completely share that frustration, Sammy. And that's really why we partnered up in this project. Sammy, I have a question. You know, all that frustration with the system and the inertia of change, did that ever lead you to reach a breaking point? Yes, Sian, there was a moment when I almost gave up. I'm going to tell you about a patient that I met named Jerry. Uh, He was a 58-year-old gentleman with a progressive lung disease. This particular disease has an average life expectancy of about two to five years. It's called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. For the first couple of years of his illness, his lung disease remained relatively stable. But at some point, he began to notice a decline. This came in the form of Jerry feeling more breathless over time, losing his energy and his overall stamina. 
The respirology team that had been following him for three years told him that without a lung transplant, he would die from his illness. It was very unclear whether or not he would ever qualify for a lung transplant, but hearing this from the respirologist, that was Jerry's one hope. Jerry's condition continued to decline, and time was running out. He became increasingly terrified that he would become more and more breathless and that he would suffocate. So he was shocked at his last appointment with the respirologist when he was told, I'm sorry, you won't qualify for a lung transplant. And this whole entire time, that was the one thing Jerry was counting on. At that point, he felt he had no other choice but to request medical assistance in dying. Medical assistance in dying was legalized in Canada in 2016. And it was just after this request that I was asked to go in and see Jerry for the first time in his home. Wow. So you're not kidding when you say you come in at the 11th hour. I mean, you're meeting him for the first time after he's formally requested physician-assisted death. So like really, really late in the journey. Yeah, I spent over two hours in Jerry's home that morning listening to his story. I remember what he looked like. He was emaciated with a sallow color to his skin. He was wearing an oxygen mask on his face, and he was facing the window. I knew that over his entire illness journey, no one had told him what to expect as things progressed. Yeah, he was told he had lung disease that wasn't curable and that eventually he would die from it without a lung transplant, but that was it. No one ever explained what was going to happen between the diagnosis and death. He really had no overarching roadmap that helped him understand what was going to happen and what was available to him. Actually, he had suffered worsening breathless for about six months before I ever met him. And no one ever addressed this with him. He just waited and waited and waited for what he thought was his only hope, the lung transplant. The whole time he became increasingly breathless. I can't help but think how profoundly disappointed he would be to know that there were many ways to treat his breathlessness the whole way along. He knew nothing about treatment for his symptoms or other supports available to him and his family during his journey. The focus was purely on getting a transplant. When I told them that he would not suffocate to death with the proper care, they were shocked, both Jerry and his family. They were shocked to learn about what dying really looks like and that with comfort care, his decline would be gentle until the end. Instead, he had been left in the dark the entire time. Yeah, Sammy, I guess on some level you can't really blame him or his family for being so terrified because he was so breathless and he just had this hope about this transplant. And when that was denied, it just seemed the only choice left was to request physician-assisted dying. I was desperately looking for a few days to prove to Jerry that there was another option for comfort care. All I was trying to do was to buy some time to fill the gaps of information that were missing in his care. Jerry and his family deserved to know everything. It was unfair for Jerry to think that his choice was suffocation or assisted death. The other option had never been offered. It rarely is. Thankfully, Jerry agreed to try some medication for his breathlessness. He said he would give me one week to try to make him feel better. I had seven precious days to do the work that should have started since way back at his diagnosis. 
Jerry tried the medication I prescribed for two days. It didn't work fast enough because I needed to start a low dose to avoid side effects. Ideally, the medication would be started earlier when there was time to increase it safely and gradually to the right dose. He quickly lost trust in me and arranged for the process of assisted death to continue. When I learned of Jerry's decision, I sat in my car and I wept. I cried all the way to my next patient with the devastating realization that I would be faced with yet again another version of the same heartbreaking challenge in the next home. It's like deja vu. Every patient I see, I find myself in the 11th hour in an impossible position of assuaging people's fears about dying. I wanted to quit and leave palliative medicine altogether. Wow, Sammy, that's a big story. There's a lot of connections with your breaking point story and our origin story, actually, of how we came about the waiting room revolution. And we've met because we both work in the same university, in the same region, and we actually sat on a committee responsible for improving the healthcare delivery system for people with serious illness. But we both felt very frustrated with how slow the system was changing because we continue to hear these stories of a broken system and a nightmare patient experience. And so we challenged ourselves to find a better way. And we met several times all the time about over coffee to think of solutions. And we, I think at one point decided if we really couldn't make a difference with our work, we would find something else to do. Anyways, I remember one of those coffee dates. I was picking your brain about a big study that we were both starting that was yet again focusing on training healthcare providers to feel more comfortable to talk about serious illness earlier. And I'll never forget the next thing you said, which has changed how I think about everything. Do you remember what you asked me? Yes, of course. I think I asked, what about the patients and families, Sien? Don't they deserve this information too? Why do we keep training healthcare providers when the people who really should have the information are patients and families? Yeah, that was it. That was my light bulb moment. I mean, I was so focused on providers as the agent for change, but here are millions of patients and families who could become change agents as well. And to make real system change, we would need a patient family army. In other words, we would need the listeners, people like you listening in the waiting rooms of the world, to be on board. Um, the system will only change when the patients and families of the world, like yourselves, demand this information earlier. And that's where we came up with the name, the waiting room revolution. The people who needed this information are yourselves in the literal and metaphorical waiting rooms right now. And we need you to help us create this revolution where patients and families are not passively in the back seats of their healthcare journey, but move into the driver's seat where you take charge and have a commanding role in shaping your experience. And up until then, we had heard many in-the-dark journeys, but we didn't quite yet know how to get to an in-the-know journey. We talk about the in-the-know journey as being more prepared, but it's not so simple as just deciding to prepare early, because we realize people don't know what they don't know. And more to the point, no two journeys are alike. So the information you need is unique to you. So while we wanted to write 
a what to expect when you're dying book, we realized a that no one would want to pick up a book like that. But also, it's way too late to start preparing when you're that far into an illness. This book that we wanted to write at the time was really something that needed to be positioned much earlier in the illness journey. In fact, this book should be nothing about dying, really. It's about the entire illness journey. It's about improving the journey from the very beginning. And yes, the end will be better because of that. But this isn't just about preparing for dying. So really, it's about what you need to know when you're facing a serious illness. So how we got to what is it that you need to know? We went through the thousands of patient and family stories, patients that Sammy has treated or the interviews of people who have told us about their experience. And we took a lot of time thinking about what was different between the two journeys. And we uncovered the seven keys to unlock an in-the-know illness journey. And that's the best part. They were these seven keys, simple keys, almost like practices or mindsets that anyone can learn and use them right away. In fact, they've been right before our eyes the whole time. So although we have reverse engineered the experience of those who were dying, these keys are relevant for anyone at any point while facing a serious illness. Knowing the keys upfront can make the entire illness experience better. So let me tell you about what to expect in the rest of the podcast. In each episode, you will learn about one of the seven keys to an in-the-know journey, and we will explain action steps so you can implement this knowledge right away. We also interview a guest who will illustrate how the key can make a difference in your experience. Just so you know, there's an episode at the very end that you may or may not want to listen to. It is about the dying process, but the rest of it is about living with an illness. Our hope is that if you learn what these keys are, and implement the skills, you will be able to move from an in-the-dark journey to an in-the-know journey. And you'll move from feeling unprepared and overwhelmed to a journey where you can feel hopeful and prepared and in charge. In a way, this is a bad news story because we're telling you that so many people have had such a rocky journey. But thanks to those people who have been generous enough to share their stories with us, we can turn this into a good news story. The good news story is that this information is now available to all the people who are listening to these episodes so that your own journey can be better. And that's the purpose of sharing all of this with you. Although we can't change the biology of the illness, we can change the experience of your illness. One where you're no longer in the dark, waiting on the healthcare system for information that you may never receive, but rather have more choice and control on how your story will unfold and be in the know. And so that you won't be one of those people that we meet that says, why didn't somebody tell me that sooner? And if I had known, I would have done something different. That's our hope. We truly believe sharing these keys with you will make a profound difference in your journey. So tune in to the next episode where we will talk about the first key and probably the most important one. It's called Walk Two Roads. Get ready, healthcare system. You're about to be met with a whole different type of patient and family. 
Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, Principal of Clarity Hub. For more information, visit us at waitingroomrevolution.com.